In the UK, the big change came earlier, and that was our change in health secretary. One of the highest death tolls in Europe by any standard were 10,000 times more likely to die from a COVID-19 infection than somebody of a school-aged child. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with our awesome sponsors, Smartcast and Najahi Events. More about them later. Okay, today's guest, let's talk all about the pandemic, what happened in government, what happened from the specialist point of view. I really want to understand why COVID was such a big thing, and then it almost disappeared without a trace. Today's guest, Mark Woolhouse, is a professor of infectious disease epidemiology at the University of Edinburgh, a post he's held for over 20 years. He's also the author of a new book, The Year the World Went Mad. And if you didn't already guess what year was, it was 2020, when the COVID-19 virus spread like wildfire across the globe. Since January 2020, Mark has been heavily involved in the UK's response to COVID-19, and his book brings a fourth and fresh scientific perspective about the mismanagement of the pandemic. I'm thrilled to have him here on the show to discuss some of the most popular questions surrounding the pandemic. Did we handle it the best way possible? Could we have done anything differently to slow the spread? Were lockdowns and social distancing absolutely necessary? And which countries handled the outbreak properly and which didn't? Mark is regarded as one of Britain's most senior scientists, so this is a brilliant opportunity to hear from an academic who was at the forefront of the world's biggest event in recent history. Let's get stuck into this one. Cue the music. The smartcasts are at the forefront of food technology. Their business is focused on solving the problem that we have, which will be not enough food for everybody on the planet in 2050. That's because the farmer's land is decreasing, the soil is eroding, and the population is growing. So smartcasts have created technology where they are at the forefront of providing a solution for us. Go check them out at Smartcast Tech on Insta if you like. S-M-A-R-T-K-A-S. T-E-C-H and look at what they're doing because I am so interested in this subject and I care greatly for the fantastic work that these people do. Najahi Events have sponsored the podcast since the beginning. They believed in me from the beginning. I have nothing but gratitude for that organization. Najahi Events bring motivational speakers and inspirational leaders here into the UAE to teach us all how to be better at so many things, whether that's personal development, your own psychology, whether that's investing in crypto. There are many areas they focus on. And I've got a lot of good things to say about this organization because they have literally supported me from the beginning. So go check out Najahi Events. That's N-A-J-A-H-I Events. You can find them on Instagram as well. Give them a follow. Look at what they're doing because really, really valuable organization. Well, Mark, the year the world went mad. What a great title for a book. And it could mean a million different things. And I really want to talk to you in detail about that today. But can you do me a favor and introduce yourself to our audience here in the Middle East? Tell them a bit about your background and why it was so significant that you were involved in the pandemic. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm a professor at the University of Edinburgh, and I've been working on infectious diseases for most of my career. And when COVID-19 came along, I, like so many of my colleagues, got very concerned very quickly and started making noises to, to government, to officials to say that actually there was something very, very big approaching us and we needed to do something about it. Uh, and on the back of that, 
Uh, I was appointed to a couple of the advisory groups in the UK, uh, one of them which is a, the senior advisory group for Scotland, uh, but also a body called SPIM, which does the epidemiological modelling that feeds into SAGE. And SAGE, as you know, was the main advisory group for the whole of the UK. Uh, so I ended up pretty heavily involved in helping the government devise its response to the pandemic. And the book is partly about those experiences, although it also, I hope, will give readers some kind of understanding of how infectious disease pandemics actually work, what the challenges are and what tools we have for facing them. So there's a lot of ground to cover and uh, yeah, I hope I've covered some of it in the book at least. Ah, good, excellent stuff. I've started listening to it. I listen to audiobooks every day when I go running. Okay, it's in my ears. So I started listening to it this morning and I'll, uh, I'll give the audience a bit of a breakdown of that once we've finished. Okay, so let's, let's talk about the last couple of years and, and, and let's talk it from a human perspective, first of all. Um, not necessarily from a victim point of view, but human beings involved in decision-making processes. Typically, in any business organization, you will have a managing director. He'll have his uh, board of directors. There'll be a team of advisors maybe around, or the, or the other directors are advisors or counsel to, to the managing director. They'll talk about the pros and the cons, the whys and the wherefores. And typically, if the managing director isn't an expert at something, he will hand over to one of his well-trained experts to make the responsible decision about what should be done within that business. Is that what happened with the politicians in the UK or did something different happen? Well, government advice on science has never uh, followed a particularly business-like model, I don't think. Um, it, it's more convoluted than that. So where someone like me fits in is a member of an advisory group that discusses a particular aspect of the pandemic at a meeting usually something that's been given us to by government, say, what do you advise we do in the current circumstance? Should we, um, you know, should we go into lockdown or should we not? Would be the, you know, one of the top ones. Uh, and that is something we discuss. We, because we're scientists, we love reaching consensus. That's how science works. So, so while you know, when you're discussing it, obviously there'd be a range of views, but the aim is always to reach some sort of consensus. Maybe we can come back to later whether that's actually a good part of the decision-making process or not. But anyway, the consensus is arrived at, and that is fed upstairs, uh, which through these sorts of committees would generally be to cabinet office level. Um, but the decision-making is made by the politicians. So it's, it, if you like, it's a bit of a one-way street. Is, is We feed our advice into the system, but we don't find out any faster than anyone else what government is actually going to do, what it's going to decide, uh, that goes on in different rooms behind a different set of closed doors. And, and we don't have access to that. Uh, as the maxim goes, advisors advise, politicians decide, and yeah, that's the way it worked. Okay, well, let's make the comparison between what happened over here uh, in Dubai and what happened in the UK. So we heard about this pandemic coming. There was obviously lots of talk about it. People ignored it at first, and then we started to get a bit worried. And then the government here in Dubai said, right, you lot, stay home. Don't leave home. If you need to go to the shops, you need to go online to apply for a permit to go to the shops, but you're not to leave home until we say so. And everyone went, okay and just stayed home 
and did what they were told to do immediately because we don't have a democracy here. Um, we are here and uh, uh, we don't have um, citizenship here. So we're here in this country as essentially guests. And so we're here to work as guests. And they said what we had to do. We followed the instruction to the letter and we all came out of the lockdown much quicker than what was going on in Europe. My family in the UK started to go into conversations where they would be debating whether the lockdown was right, <clears throat> whether it was wrong, whether they should do it, whether they shouldn't do it. Um, some people were like, you know, it's the right thing to do. Look at what's happening. Other people were like, bloody government, at it again. You know, it's, they haven't got our best interests at heart. There's a plan. There's a cunning plan behind it. There's a conspiracy theory. And all this kind of stuff became part of regular conversation. Whereas over here, there was none of that. It was like, stay home. Okay. And by the way, you're going to get a vaccine, then you're going to get a second vaccine, then you're going to get a booster vaccine. And if you don't like it, no problem, you can leave. And so guess what we did? We all went and got a vaccine. We got a second vaccine. We got a booster vaccine because we couldn't fly. We couldn't travel. We couldn't do anything unless we did what we were told. But we all kind of conformed and there wasn't any, any drama around it. However, in the UK, it was a much different story. So tell me about what your experience was. Well, first thing to say about all that is... I've worked with government on and off for many years, advising them on this sort of question. And I would go for cock off over conspiracy every time. I, I just don't think there's the wherewithal within government to implement conspiracies about all this, where you know people are struggling enough to cope with the problems that are right in their faces at the time. And uh, sometimes that goes well, and sometimes it goes less well. So I cock off over conspiracy every single time. Um, I mean, Dubai obviously is a particular case, as you say, particular governmental system um, that if you like, if you're into pretty harsh dictatorial public health measures, no, can be pretty effective. Uh, this started not in Dubai. This started in China. This started with the lockdown they put on the city of Wuhan, where this mm -hmm. virus first arose in, in late 2019. They locked Wuhan down in late January, and I don't know what the view was in Dubai, but in the UK, it was, goodness me, can they really do that? Is that something that's going to happen? And I don't think even then many people in the UK thought that within two months, we'd be doing the same thing. I don't think anyone thought that was remotely possible. And, and that's another aspect of this. We never planned lockdowns. They weren't in anyone's playbook. I'm pretty sure they weren't in the government of Dubai's playbook, although I haven't looked at it. But no, no one in their public health planning had said, yeah, well, in the case of a respiratory virus, a bit like SARS, which this one was, we will actually lock down all of society and tell them to stay home for weeks or months. That, that wasn't planned to do. We, we, we made this one up. We'll come on later as to why we did that. Um, so uh, in answer to your question, yeah, if you're looking at this from a very narrow public health perspective, then having a population that does as it's told is actually very helpful. Uh, but I think you and I will agree that raises a whole lot of deeper questions about how we run our society, not just how we run our pandemic response, uh, which isn't really my arena. I'm, I'm a scientist, not a politician. Um, but I'm glad that, you know, the epidemic management in Dubai is thought to have gone well. Uh, many people in the UK don't think it went so well, and uh, we're still picking apart the reasons for that. Mm, absolutely. Now, Tell me how easy or frustrating it is 
coming from your background with your expertise and knowledge to work effectively with politicians that really don't understand the ins and outs of what they're dealing with? Are they open-minded people? Are they listening to the advice and, 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 and doing as they're told? Are they, do they have another agenda, which is sometimes a little bit more difficult for you to infiltrate because of the science behind what you do and because of what they want to ultimately do? Can you just talk about that for a minute? Yeah, that's, that's a, a really interesting question and gets right to the heart of, of the challenge of being at the interface between, between science and policy. Uh, and it, it, it's not easy at all. Um, I, I think like a scientist in the terms I'm, I'm trying to solve a problem couched in my own phrase. So if you say, what's the best way to reduce the public health burden of this virus? You know, I can talk you through the pros and cons of social distancing, of vaccination, of test and trace, and all that sort of thing. What you have to get used to is the politicians get all that, and, and they were, uh, many of them were very engaged. You know, I, I was involved in several direct briefings with Nicola Sturgeon, the first minister of Scotland. It doesn't, in, in Scotland, it doesn't get any higher level than that. So the, there's no question they were engaged. But of course, they see everything through a different lens. And... Clearly, although it's usually unstated in the meetings, one of those lenses is how will this go down with the electorate? Um, and, you know, we've just been talking about uh, the scientists like me have to try and understand how the electorate will respond to any public health messaging or public health instruction they're giving. But we don't have to worry about how they're going to vote at the next election. That's not in our thinking at all. It is in the politicians. There is no way around that that I can see. That is just the reality of my job versus a politician's job and they're different realities. So did they do a good job? Uh, in Dubai, in the UK, in, in the, the world. In, in the UK, let's deal with the UK. Um, certainly not in the first year. The UK ended up with one of the highest death tolls in Europe. Uh, lots of arguments still ongoing about exactly how you count the number of people who died of COVID-19. Um, but by any standards, it was an awful lot too many. No one would be willing to accept that kind of death toll ever again. We'd have to do better next time. But at the same time, in the UK, we also suffered one of the, the most severe stretches of lockdown. Uh, we were in lockdown for months in the 12 months from uh, March 2020. I mean, that's a bad outcome. By anybody's standards, that's a bad outcome. We, we, we had the harshest lockdown on one of the world death toll. So no, it didn't go well. And tell me what your thoughts are on lockdowns. Do you think that lockdowns make sense or do you think there are better ways? They make sense in a very specific context. They make sense in the context which they were first applied. We were talking earlier about Wuhan uh, in January 2020. And that context is if the aim of your public health policy is to eliminate the virus entirely from your city or your country. And that's what they actually managed to do in China. Unfortunately, where it went wrong for the rest of us is they managed to eliminate the virus in Wuhan, but not before it had spread not only to other places in China, where they also managed to control it, but it had spread outside China. And by that time, uh, there, was, there was too much virus in too many other countries in the world. Uh, to actually stop the pandemic from happening. But in that local context for Wuhan, it worked. It, it also worked in New Zealand and Australia because they were pursuing a zero COVID policy. So if it got in uh, through their largely closed borders, 
lockdown, go into lockdown and try and eliminate it from Auckland or Melbourne or Sydney or wherever it was, and with considerable success. Well, we might have done that in the UK, but by the best expert view, I've consulted others on this, but I completely agree with it, the timing for that was sometime in the second half of February 2020. What happened, and we now know this from tracing the virus, is that huge numbers of people were coming into Europe, sorry, in from Europe, bringing the virus with them. Uh, actually, ironically, particularly associated with the February half term of the schools, lots of people going on holiday, brought thousands and thousands of infections in, and it started to spread largely unseen because we weren't testing much. And by the, a month later, by March, this virus was firmly established in the UK. Zero COVID was not an option. That, that option had gone several weeks beforehand. So this context in which lockdown made sense didn't exist. It wasn't the right policy. Once you, once you realize that zero COVID is out of reach, and people did know it in my field then, but, but it, was a, you know, it was a very much a minority view at the time, that we were not going to get rid of this virus. You realize you're going to have to live with it. Well, immediately you think, well, lockdown's not a good idea. That's not sustainable. We can't keep lockdown going indefinitely. We can't stay in lockdown till we get a vaccine. So you think of something else to do. You don't go into lockdown if you're not trying to eliminate the virus. Did, did they have options, though? Or is this a benefit of hindsight, knowing that there should have been options? How, how do you see it? Well, it's more a question of how you get the balance right. Uh, and, and as I say, what, one of the things I think that drove this firmly in the direction of lockdown was this belief that it would solve the problem, which actually means you would eliminate the virus, though it wasn't necessarily phrased that way. And I think most people in the UK, and certainly most politicians, were under the impression that we were put up with this for a few weeks, that if we locked down tightly, everybody knuckled down and gritted their teeth and got through this, that would be it. The pandemic would be over, it would be manageable, the problem would be in some sense solved. That was never remotely likely. You know, we'd done all the work, all the analysis back in February. We knew that if you don't get rid of the virus, and as I say, there was no prospect of it doing it, it would just come back again. You have a lockdown, you relax, it comes back. You have another lockdown, you relax, it comes back, which of course is exactly what happened. So we knew all this was going to happen, and yet there was still this belief that somehow lockdown would solve the problem. So what do you do when you realize that actually you can't get rid of the virus? Well, then you think, well, this thing is going to be a threat for the foreseeable future. Who's it going to be a threat to? Well, we established that very early on. It's the biggest threat by far, by far, to the elderly, the frail, and the infirm, those people with other underlying health conditions that make them particularly vulnerable to this virus. And that's really quite a small minority that are vastly more at risk. To give you a statistic, uh, the over 75s, we knew from very early on, were 10,000 times more likely to die from a COVID-19 infection than somebody of, who was at school, a school-aged child, 15-year-old. 10,000 10,000 10,000 times. 10, 10, and we knew that really early on. 10,000 times. That's not a bit, so, is it? That's not a bit. No, no, no. This isn't, this is, this is, you know, so, okay, so you realize that, well, hang on, there's a subset of the population who are really at quite significant risk here. There's another large subset, a majority of the population, the young and the healthy, that are actually not really particularly severe risk from this virus at all. But some people are. 
So you have to protect those people. We didn't do that. We didn't do that nearly as effectively as it might because, I keep coming back to this, we were focusing on lockdown as the solution to the problem. And that would make it all go away. So okay, but hold, hold, yeah, hold on yeah, a minute. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. you, you said they believed that lockdown was... Who, who believed? Because the scientists didn't. No, but I think the politicians did, and I think the media did, and therefore I think the public did. And that was how it was sold. If you remember, Boris Johnson was saying quite clearly at the time, this is just for a few weeks, implying that some end is in sight. Well, what was it? But how does that happen? I mean, I don't work in government and stuff, but how does it happen where you've got experts like you saying you're never going to get to a stage where you've got zero COVID. So you're, you're never going to have that situation, which effectively means that lockdown isn't going to be effective. How does that get then chewed up, spat out and disregarded and another path followed when it's not in the best interest? Because lockdown, I'm sure, was not in the best interest of, of people from an electoral perspective, from a voter confidence point of view, people didn't like the idea of it, did they? You would have thought not. But actually, the polls were saying that people were very supportive of lockdown. Uh, the, the people had been given this impression just that the virus was very, very uh, a very significant threat, not just to this minority of people, but actually to everyone. So people were really, really concerned. I mean, the atmosphere in the second half of March in the UK was pretty febrile. And people throughout have been very, very supportive of, of the lockdown measures. So I don't think there was a political cost to going into lockdown because the impression people had been given was actually leading them to think that this was a really good idea. Media had painted such a dark picture of it. That's the, that's well, the, it wasn't just such a dark picture. I mean, this is a serious... I'm not absolutely understating just how serious this virus is, but it is particularly serious for a small known minority of the population. It is not equally serious for everyone. We didn't need to treat it as if it was a blanket threat for the entire population, certainly not for school children. Let's, let's, let's have some statistics on this then. So we've got a population of, what, 65, 70 million people in the UK... That, how many of that population were, were at, at high risk? So of the, the people who died in the, in the first year, so we're talking roughly 100,000, 120,000, over 90% of them came from a minority, 15% of the population, that can be so, so nine out of 10 of those deaths, that we could clearly identify now on the basis of these risk factors of age, infirmity, and frailty, um, 90%. Uh, the most that we have a long list of risk factors. We actually understand them quite well. Um, one of them, incidentally, is being male, by the way, which is a significant disadvantage in this, but it's also uh, ethnicity comes into it. But the other kind of things that make a difference, are the most common are things like obesity, uh, which does, does make a big difference. Uh, but other uh, respiratory disorders, uh, any immunosuppression, all these sort of things. But the point is, these were very well characterized and really quite quickly. So, so we could identify clearly who was at risk and who wasn't. Now, it's not, it's not that the minority without those risk factors are at no risk at all. They're not. Uh, there was a, a regular uh, stream of, of, of deaths in apparently people who, who were young and fit and healthy. In the end, it, it came to a few hundred. Uh, and obviously, that's a few hundred too many. 
But when you get down to those sort of numbers, you are talking about a risk that is no greater from an awful lot of other kinds of conditions, including influenza. So, so the fact that this risk was so concentrated in, in this uh, small, relatively small minority should have driven our entire health response. I mean, that those people should have been protected. And, and the statistic I was going to give you earlier, and I'm very keen to get, get, get you to understand this one, so I'll, I'll give you a go, <laughs> is we went into lockdown partly on the assumption that this would protect everybody, including, of course, this very susceptible minority. Uh, but tens of thousands of those people died during the first wave, tens of thousands of them. Of those people, the majority got their infection, not before we went into lockdown, not after we came out, but during lockdown. Most of the people in the vulnerable category that died, died from infections they got during lockdown. Lockdown didn't save these people. This was what it was billed as. It was supposed to save this, this minority. And indirectly, of course, it did have an effect, which we'll come back to. But it wasn't focused where we needed to be focusing on these people who were very, very, very vulnerable. And we now understand why. And it's not, it's not, this is not rocket science. You know, this was all easily worked out well in advance. I told you, these people are elderly, they're frail, they're infirm. They needed some sort of contacts. They needed physical care, social care, health care. They needed to access the health care system. They needed people coming in every day to look after them. People like my own mother, who's in, in very much in this position. So I know, you know, I know how her life is. She, she has visits from carers several times a day, as, as do millions of other people. So it wasn't possible to lock them down in a way of keeping them completely isolated. And that strategy didn't save these people. And pretty angry about that myself so what do you what do you do when you when you feel that because as a scientist you look at the data you give the advice you give the opinion you then uh, come through the other side of it not all of your advice has been followed um, you then see some of the the efforts to deal with it didn't work at all and you're sat there it's to some to some degree, almost saying, "I told you so." Yeah, well, that's the thing you don't want to be in the position of of being able to say, "I told you so." You want things to be done the best way possible at the time. Nevertheless, but that's what happened. It is, and, and we talked earlier about how science moves by consensus. And you asked me the question, which I haven't yet answered: is is why why was the advice that I've been giving you now why was that not followed at the time? And here's one of the reasons. Not everyone was giving the same advice. And that's been true throughout this pandemic. And I'm not naming names, partly because it wouldn't be fair, but that there were people who were very influential who took a completely different view. So I was explaining to you that it was clear that we were going to be living with this virus for the foreseeable future. I mean, I when I say I knew from February 2020 this virus was here to stay, I was not alone in that. There were, there were papers being published in some of the leading scientific journals in the world showing how this would happen, how we would transition from a pandemic to a disease that was with us uh, permanently, an endemic, an endemic disease. So we knew that, but not everyone agreed with this. And I remember one exchange I had by email with a very influential advisor saying, look, we've got to do something sustainable you know, this is going to go on for one to two years, at least. And the response that came back, ah, you're just being fatalistic. That's irresponsible advice you're giving there. 
no, this is this is fatalistic. We, we, we won't be in this position in two years. Well, it doesn't help to be saying I told you so. I did tell you so, and you didn't believe me, and your your arguments won the day at the time. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm not happy about that. Do you have a, a a group of other scientists that share the same opinions of you that are frustrated equally as you are? Well, I think there's a lot of people frustrated for a lot of different reasons that the management of the pandemic in the UK and pretty much every other country in the world could have gone better. Uh, you know, we can all uh, see, see ways in which we could have improved it, whether we said them at the time or it's just hindsight. So I wouldn't say anyone's happy. I think where my view is still a minority view is how I see the role of lockdown in this. Uh, and there's a lot of people who still would present it as an unavoidable necessity. It's something we, we couldn't get around. Uh, and there's plenty of people who, who would argue that. And you know, I, I can have a point by point debate about whether or not the other ways of controlling this virus, particularly by focusing on, uh, on these most vulnerable minority would have been more effective. But that's not the end of the story. There is another counter argument to, uh, or another way of countering the argument that lockdowns were not a good idea. Uh, and that is to claim, and this I get this repeatedly even now, that anyone who doesn't support lockdown is actually saying they'd be quite happy for more people to die. It wouldn't bother them if the disease was spreading more widely and more people would have died. Uh, and and that, is, that is still being trotted out every time you criticise lockdown, saying, oh, well, you just don't care if more people die, uh, which I'm sure you will appreciate. I take great exception to that sort of comment. You know, my... One of my jobs in life is to try and reduce the public health burden of the disease. So there's no question of doing nothing. There's no question of locking down and not doing, not locking down and doing nothing instead. Uh, we have to find, find ways to protect people and we have to find ways to protect people better than lockdown did. And I, and I think that's well worth emphasizing. Um, as one of uh, somebody I know in the media, in fact, he wrote it in a, in a review of my book. Uh, and he said in that early stage of 2020, supporting lockdown became a test of virtue. And he's right about that. And he was right about that even among scientists. It was very, very difficult to, to put forward alternative ideas at the time, or as I'm saying, even, even now, it's quite difficult to have that debate. We see with Russia invading Ukraine, the, 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 the warmongers benefit from war. And there's, there's money to be made in the corrupt world we live in and this is just an opportunity for warmongers to get involved. And had Joe Biden just said, well, you know, Ukraine will never join NATO, then Putin would never have invaded Ukraine in the first place. There's always a financial aspect to it. Do you think there was any part of what has happened over the course of the last two years, any decisions that were made that were for the benefit financially of any entity in any way? I have absolutely no knowledge of any such thing. And as we were talking earlier, uh, I would choose cock up over conspiracy every single time. I mean, clearly uh, there were well-publicized difficulties with procurement in the UK, and I'm sure there were elsewhere and all, all sorts of stories flying around of which I have no inside knowledge whatsoever. Uh, but my instinct is to go with cock up. 
Yeah. Okay. So we see, we've seen, you know, there's been over the years in the UK, there's been money that's not been spent as effectively as it could have been in the NHS. And we've seen through the pandemic, you're absolutely right with uh, various orders of PPE equipment, et cetera, um, has been, you know, cock-ups in the, 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 the order, the supply and the delivery of that kind of stuff. I, I try and put myself in the position of being the prime minister. And I, and I try and think to myself, what would I have done? Would I have been panicked as if I was on the Titanic and it was going to sink and I was the captain and I've got to do the right thing, but I knew, you know, imminent death was soon. I think about if I have, if I had caught COVID like Boris did, how it would have affected my mindset, depending on how sick I got whilst I was in hospital, when it comes to making decisions. When, when you put yourself uh, in the position of human beings trying to make really big decisions and tough decisions in a time of, let's not say mass panic, but very close to mass panic. Do you have empathy for the politicians? Oh, I absolutely do. Uh, and one thing I can could clearly see at the time was you know, a genuine concern for what was happening and you know the, the uncertainties were real some of the projections and predictions were very very dire indeed uh, and no i think the concern was was absolutely uh, genuine as, as for putting yourself in in their place well maybe you could do it i, I i'm not sure i can as i was saying earlier i i, I think like a scientist that's what i am I, i'm not i don't think like a politician so the way I process the information that both I'm, I'm giving out and, and the, the information I'm receiving is, 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 is quite different. I'm using different yardsticks to, yeah, yeah. to judge what I do by. You, um, know, you know what you're right about that, because you know, I, if, if I was having to put my mind in the space of a, of a scientist, I don't think I could go there. So you're absolutely right. I, don't, I probably don't hold politicians in the same high regard that I hold, hold scientists. <laughs> so maybe, maybe I think I could uh, have a go at winging, winging that a little bit myself. But I suppose we all have an element to that, um, that part of our personalities. Okay. Let, let's let's talk about other things related to it then and, and, and how you saw other aspects. So we had had lockdown, we had social distancing, we had masks, um, and obviously we had vaccines. So which part of the process did you support and applaud? And which part of those processes and rules did you did you think were just not very sensible at all? So that, that's a relatively easy question to answer, actually. So because I'd realised from very early on, as, as had many, but as we were saying, not all of my colleagues, that we were going to be living with this virus for the foreseeable future. My emphasis was always on measures that made contacts safe rather than stopping us having them all together. We're going to have to live with this thing. So it's, it's, it's almost an exact equivalent. You know, we were told, well, you have to halve the number of contacts you have per day and keep it to an absolute minimum. Well, of course, if you make all those contacts only half as risky, that has the same effect. So you can go an awful long way here by making contacts safe. So that was always my emphasis. So masks help make contacts safe. Uh, testing is a crucial tool for making contacts safe. Even before we had mass testing, we had the PCR test that you could use for that purpose. Uh, and of course, the vaccines help make contact safe because they, they, they mean the risk of transmission is much less. So I was always in favor of pretty much any measure that made contact safe. 
And by the same token, very uh, suspicious, very unenthusiastic about measures that reduced, uh, that were socialistic measures that reduced the number of contacts we made, that basically made it more difficult to, to live our lives as normal. Now, the, before certainly before we had vaccines, I don't think there was any question of, of living a fully normal life, not, not just because people like me would say, well, that would have a big impact on the size of the epidemic, but because the public have worked that out perfectly well for themselves hmm. and the public changed their own behavior in ways that made them and the people around them safe. So that, that was happening anyway. But the, uh, that's the key. Make the contacts safe. Don't ban them altogether. When, you've, when you're faced with the choice, I'm just trying to think about politicians again, with making it safe or banning it altogether, what's, what's the easiest thing to sell? I suppose, again, thinking about the politicians and electorate, I always keep going out into this place. I'm thinking about the people as much as I'm thinking about anything else. What is the politicians thinking the easiest thing to sell or the one that's going to stain his reputation the least, <laughs> maybe? Well, the, what the politicians seem to do, we're moving now beyond that first lockdown uh, into in the autumn of 2020, is they then became very resistant to the idea of lockdown in the UK. There was a, a great reluctance to go back into lockdown. And if you recall, actually, that number of cases, number of people in the hospital, number of people dying, rose slowly through September and started to accelerate in October. And what we got then was a, another round of scientists, definitely not me, but other scientists, calling very loudly for urgent measures to be taken, basically lockdown again. And by then, it should have been clear to all of us that actually you didn't need a full lockdown to control this virus. We, we, we absolutely got all the evidence there. We, we knew from analyses of the first lockdown that the actual stay-at-home order, the legal requirement stay-at-home, didn't add much because actually people weren't going out much anyway. Uh, but stopping outdoor activities really didn't have much effect because this virus never transmitted well out, outdoors. So there was no need to ban those. And even closing schools was actually having relatively little effect. Sweden never did it except for the oldest children and Denmark and other countries went back very quickly. We were much slower in the UK. So we knew all these things that made up the first lockdown weren't actually necessary. And yet you have scientists in the media calling for another lockdown and the government resisting them. What we should have done is put more proportionate measures in place, the sorts of things I've just been talking about, making contact safe, and said, look, right, we really need to get that right now in September, October. And I was writing about this in September. But otherwise, not only will the number of cases rise, but there's a risk we go back into lockdown. So you avoid lockdown by taking less drastic measures sooner. And we knew that, and we didn't do it. Always the question, isn't it? Always the question is, is why? Let's, without, because I think we could spend probably the next three or four hours talking about what went wrong, what mistakes were made, um, what, with the benefit of hindsight, what improvements could be made to, to, to not go back there again. And I think you've documented a lot of that really evidently in your book. Um, and I love the fact that you're quite irate about a few things because I find sometimes when people are, they write really well about how they how they see a situation. I know you're a scientist, but you're you're a human being too, so there'll be some 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 emotional thoughts through that process too. 
when, when we look at the, the future and we see what we've been through, will, will this ever happen again? I'll come to that. Can I, can I just add to a comment you just made about scientists being human? You're, you're quite right. I've written the book in that way to try and stress to everyone that the scientific community is not some emotionless computing machine that you feed in the data and preferably the right answer kind of spits out the end and the politicians can take it or not. But no, that we were all very concerned as well. And when we're giving advice, you know, we're not making decisions, but we are giving advice that leads to those decisions being made that affect the lives of pretty much absolutely everyone in the country. I, I think it's fair to the public to take the lid off the box a bit. How, how does that really work? You know, what's actually going through people's minds when these decisions are being made or not made or this advice has been given or not given? Uh, and so I've, I've made a conscious effort to try and do that a bit. It's not a heart on the sleeve book, but I do want to make the point that you know, scientists, just as you say, are, are human too. Well, the, so at, the, gonna, at, the, at the end of the day, though, you mentioned earlier, you know, your mum's elderly, she gets care. You've all got families, you know, you, you care yeah. about human beings just yeah. as well. So, yeah. I mean, why do you even get into the subject in the first place unless you have an interest in, in you know, the human mind, you know, and, uh, uh, and what we do? No, no, absolutely. And, uh, you know, whether you agree or disagree with, with what was done and the scientific advice that underpinned it, uh, I mean, I speak, I speak from personal experience, you know, do not, do not, uh, get at the motivation of the people giving that advice. They, they are all absolutely committed to doing the best they possibly can to make a bad situation less bad. I mean, I saw that day in, day out. You know, whether I agree with them or not, I'm absolutely comfortable with their, with their motivations being absolutely genuine. Mm. No, 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 no question about it at all. But you're right, we are going to, to face this again at some point. And, and we have to ask the difficult question, not from my point of view, given my role, is whether the scientific advice system worked to its best effect in the UK and, and around the world. And um, we've been talking particularly about the situation in the UK, but I, I would also put in the spotlight very much the World Health Organization. And I'm not the first one to do that. There's been some pretty high level reviews of the World Health Organization's performance and they're pretty damning. They're pretty damning. And they, you know, they got a number of things wrong, but the, the one that sticks with me mostly is, I, I, I was mentioning just now, just how important early action was, both for reducing the, the size of the epidemic and the public health problem it causes, but also for keeping us out of things like lockdown. You know, we, we don't have to be so drastic if, if we do more proportionate responses early on. And I was calling for this, you know, from a very early stage, from, from mid-January in Scotland, saying that, you know, actually we needed to have a pretty effective response in, to this pandemic because it was going to be a very major event. And while I was doing that, the World Health Organization wasn't even calling it a pandemic. They didn't call it a pandemic until well into March. So here am I, one scientist, telling the Scottish government, you've got to do something. And all they have to do is, well, the WHO doesn't even say it's a pandemic yet. Uh, I'm not going to win that argument. No. I mean, in a way, rightly, I'm not. So, you know, it, it's, it's not just what we do in the UK that matters. It's what we do internationally. And that the World Health Organization plays a large role in that. Um, the, the politics comes in as to what 
governments are prepared to do beyond just wait and see. I mean, wait and see is what got us into the mess we got in uh, because we wait. But can we persuade governments that actually what we should have done probably was all close our borders at the end of January 2020? And right now, I have to say, I cannot see a mechanism for making that happen, for getting international agreement next time when SARS-3 comes out of China or anywhere else that it may arise from, that we all close our borders instantly. I don't think there's a political mechanism in place to do that. And maybe that's a good place to start, is how, how, how do we get governments around the world to recognise that we do need to do something drastic to avoid a much worse problem later on? Yeah, obviously, island nations, that's much easier. But you think of many countries across most continents and, you know, they're, they're almost in places borderless, aren't they? Um, well, indeed. And, and that, that was an issue with the EU uh, all the way through. Uh, I'm actually not particularly in favour of border closures, uh, except at the very, very beginning of this, because after that, it, it's, it's too late. The, the, you know, you've closed the stable door, but the horse has bolted. Um, but but the EU, as you, as you say, I mean the, the, the whole ethos is is for free travel uh, and so on around, and, and they were very reluctant to, to go that route. And there may be circumstances, there may be different kinds of uh, pandemic challenge we face in the future where you do need to think about that sort of action. But I I think they'll be just as unwilling to do it then as they were now. Talk to me about how you see the world reacting to it now, considering. We, we saw, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine and almost overnight, it, COVID left our mainstream news feed. It literally stopped being spoken about again. And occasionally you might read in the back of a website somewhere or, or, or some, you know, remote channel that there's a new virus or a new, a new strain of this or a new strain of that. But it's almost like people are sick to the back teeth of it. They've had enough of it. And it, does that make it so much harder for scientists and governments to convince people in the future of what's the right thing to do? Well, I think the first thing to say is, surely we have to see the back of it eventually. And what I've said to, in many media interviews recently is, is one way I'll know that we've truly learned to live with COVID-19 is because I won't be on the media all the time talking about it. Nobody will be interested. Nobody will care. It's just something that goes on in the background, like, influenza does most years. And yes, people in public health are doing a lot about it. You know, there's a lot going on, but it's not, as you quite rightly say, in the media spotlight anymore. But, you know, I don't think we're quite at that stage yet, although you're right that the media interest has, has died off somewhat. I think in the UK, the big change came earlier uh, than, than Ukraine or any anything else to distract it. And that was our change in health secretary. Mm -hmm. When Matt Hancock left and Sajid Javid took over, we went straight from, I think, a policy of trying to minimise the threat at any cost. I want to put words in, in Matt Hancock's mouth, but it seemed to be what he was about most of the time, uh, to a policy where clearly we were learning to live with the virus. Sergei Javid was very clear about that from onset. And I, I think there was tremendous improvement in the sustainability of our response and the sorts of measures we put in place to deal with, say, the Omicron wave were much more proportionate. Uh, and, and much more sustainable than, than what we've been doing before. So I think that was a big uh, improvement. Um, I think the emphasis, you know, moving on to other big global topics, whether it's the Ukraine war or otherwise, 
has led to some extent as taking an eye on the ball, because I said this is a still a public health problem. And maybe to bring it back full circle, there's an irony there. The number of people in hospital we have in Scotland at the moment is a record high. Even if you strip out the people who are in there for incidental infections, they're not really sick with COVID-19, it's still extremely high. 18 months ago, we'd be in lockdown. This, this, complete, this would not be acceptable. This, we would not be looking mm. at that. Um, so, you know, from my, my point of view, we've actually, uh, we've gone from overreacting to perhaps even underreacting right now. We, we, we are, the switch has been so total, so complete uh, from this idea that we could somehow keep the virus almost non-existent, which was just not possible, to, to now tolerating really quite high levels of a public health burden. It's amazing. The, the, the shift is quite extraordinary. When you, when you consider that small minority that were at dramatic risk in the, in the early stages to the vast majority by comparison that were at somewhat less risk, along with people becoming sick and tired of being sick and tired, that the, the people that potentially become the victims, if something else happens or if the virus continues goes back to that minority doesn't it and essentially it goes back to that minority being now vulnerable because there's very limited you know controls or you know social distancing face masks all that kind of stuff's gone as well now so that's that's all out of the window so does it does it put that group of people back at back at risk again now do you think whilst everyone has just gone oh i'm done well i think there's a a real concern that that's the case. Um, so first thing to say is, as I was explaining a little while ago, that actually the lockdown measure itself wasn't a particularly effective way of protecting mm-hmm. that minority because they still had to have contacts uh, just in their day-to-day lives. They couldn't, they couldn't avoid them. So I, I think there's always been a need for more focus on, on protecting those people. Uh, and as you quite rightly say, still is. Now, the vaccines have made a huge difference. So, you know, the chance of being hospitalized, even with Omicron, which is quite different from the, the strains we actually developed the vaccine to protect against. But I mean, that's, you know, that's down by 80, 90 percent, maybe even a little bit more. So things are much, much safer. But you're right. Uh, you know, there's, there's obviously is another hazard that, that people in the vulnerable category have to wonder about, have to worry about. And I've never been in favour of doing absolutely nothing elsewhere. Uh, yes, if we can find ways to reduce the levels of infection in the community as a whole, that's a good thing for everybody. But the thing is not to do it at the cost of normal functioning society, but to do it in ways that make contact safe in the ways I've described. The, the single easiest thing, the thing I rely on most in my own interactions with you know, vulnerable members of my family is this self-testing. Now, I, I was an advocate of self-testing on this on the sorts of scale we're seeing it, basically everybody from as early as March 2020. And I remember giving my advice at an advisory group meeting and saying I could foresee a time when actually everyone in the population, this is of Scotland, so you know, five, six million people, were going to be testing at least once a week. Now, it wouldn't be fair to say I was laughed out of the room, but it was pretty close. Yeah. I was gently told off by a senior official and said, you know, Mark, our advice has to be realistic. 
no, that, that's not a realistic proposal. The government's not going to listen to, you know, he didn't say nonsense like that, so I shouldn't put words in his mouth, but <laughs> it felt like that's what he wanted to say. Yeah. But of course, that's exactly what we ended up doing 18 months later. And I say it was awkward, obvious to me anyway that we were going to need to do that. And it was, it was the uptake on the self-testing was, was very, very high. And I, I don't know what other people do, but if I'm going to see an elderly relative, I'm going to the sort of environment where I might put vulnerable people at risk, I self-test. Uh, I self-test before coming into work. Yes, it's an imposition, but it's an awful lot less of an imposition than lockdown. Uh, and, and I think it helps us all. So to, to, this is a long answer to your, your narrow question, but the answer to keeping the vulnerable people safe is to make sure that the people around them are not at risk themselves, are not a, not a risk themselves, uh, which we can do by testing. Okay, well, well I think that we, there's, a, there's an aspect of moral responsibility here. Just, you know, I, I think about my family. So my, my parents are both 76 years old. And so... They, live, they retired to Cyprus. They live on a house on a hill in the countryside, so they're not surrounded by lots of people, and they're very happy that way. Thank you very much. But even though I've had all of the vaccines, there's no way in the world I'm going near my elderly parents without getting a test beforehand. It's, it's just that, that to me is just incredibly irresponsible, and I wouldn't do that to my parents. And so I suppose if everybody took that approach then we would be able to protect the infirm and elderly. If we knew people, you know, that's the category of people who are at risk. If they're in your family and you're going to come in contact with them or you like them even, and they're not your family member, but they're a friend, do yourself a favor by doing them a favor. And I think then, then you, you've, you've almost nailed it if people can buy into that concept, yeah? Well, yeah, and that's, as I say, but I was saying this back in March 2020 that this was... This was our way out of this to make the risks to the vulnerable people manageable was to do do exactly this. I, I um, would I would be if I was in your position, I'd be barking. I'd be so angry. I'd be so. Yeah, I, 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 wrote, I wrote a book about it. That's how I dealt with it. <laughs> that's, 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 that, that, that's what I did. But uh, but but I say it, it, it was an obvious thing to do. Now, I, I think. People are pretty good at gauging risk in many ways. And, you know, you and I may feel differently than we do now when we reached a point where actually, well, there's very little virus circulating. I haven't even heard of a case for, you know, several weeks now. I, 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 I don't think I've got it. I mean, I might, I might well take the test anyway. Um, but, you know, we'll, we, well, why, we, why we feel that way now is because we know there's a lot of virus around. There's a lot of virus circulating. Uh, and clearly there's a chance that you, know, you and I might be infected on a given day. So, so we need to be aware of that. So I, I think one, one of the things that the self-testing does, it gives us all agency. We can manage our, our own risk. And, and the government was very unwilling to do that, hence all these legal restrictions that we all went into, despite the evidence. So as I said earlier, the evidence was that people actually were really concerned about this virus were very anxious to do the right thing and were very willing to do it. And, and, and they did. So I'm not sure more was needed than that. But also when you look at the, the testing, the, the mass testing that was introduced in the UK, particularly for the Omicron wave, the, the free testing, 85% of people reported taking a test in a given week at the height of that wave. 50% or more <clears throat> said they'd taken a test at least three times. People were really embracing this. 
and I'm perfectly prepared to accept that anyone who bothers to take a test is going to do something if they turn out to be positive. They're not going to carry on as normal. Otherwise, why would they bother taking the test at all? Mm -hmm. So people actually were embracing this possibility of managing this risk for themselves and the people around them directly. Um, but we didn't give them the opportunity to do that until the epidemic was almost two years old. Fascinating. Okay, let's talk about your book. Um, give me a summary of what the book's about. It's about why I believe that lockdown will be seen by history as a monumental mistake on a truly global scale. And it's, it's that for the reasons that we've been discussing that there were other and in fact better ways, I think, to control this virus, and particularly to control the harm the virus does because we got awfully mixed up between controlling the number of infections versus reducing the number of hospitalizations, and they're not the same thing. So, so there were other ways to do it, but also, of course, because of the immense harm that lockdown caused, the huge harms it caused to, well, for a start, healthcare provision. People didn't go to hospital during that first wave in the UK when they absolutely needed to do. Thousands of people died in their homes from things like stroke and heart attacks, far more than usually would, because they were told not to go to hospital, not to bother the NHS. That was a mistake. The mental health burden, which ironically, actually, during that first wave, wasn't so bad. People, mostly young people, were a little bit depressed and unhappy, uh, but it, it wasn't a sort of clinical epidemic, but it got much, much worse as this went on. Uh, and now the mental health burden is starting to really show through, particularly in the younger generation. Then there's the economic harm. And when you say, talk about economic harm, people immediately say, oh, well, you're, you're valuing uh, money over lives. You're valuing the economy over public health. But of course, the two are absolutely interlinked. A healthy economy is, is an economy that can support a vibrant NHS, an effective NHS. That's where the NHS gets its funds from. If the economy goes downhill, there's a threat to the NHS. And we also know and have known for decades, if not centuries, that there's a really tight link between poverty and health. So the economic harm, this, well, we're beginning to see the effects of that, aren't we? That the, the lockdown in particular, lockdown in particular have caused, that is going to have health impacts going forward. And then finally, but just as importantly, there's the educational harms. The fact that millions of people, millions of children in the UK had their schooling interrupted for actually over a period of three school years, they've had major disruption to their education. In countries like Uganda, the schools were closed for two whole years. Now, in that part of the world, I mean, the schools are obviously important for education, but they're also the centerpiece for so much uh, social support, health care. They're central to the, the, the functioning, the, the, the prospects of these children. Uh, and yet the schools were closed for two years. This, that's a huge, huge price to pay. And you would like to think it was all worthwhile that there was a point to closing schools. But the evidence was never there that there was much of a one. We, we knew from the outset that children themselves were really not at very, well, really very low risk from this virus, unless they happened to be already, unfortunately, very poorly, very frail with, with other conditions, uh, which, which, of course, is, is, is something we have, absolutely have to pay attention to. 
But the vast majority of children, no, they're, they're, they're very, very low risk for that. Uh, and we also established quite early on that unlike influenza, schools were not really driving this pandemic. They were caught up in it, but that, that isn't the reason why we have a pandemic is not because the schools were open. And when you look across Europe, the schools being open and shut doesn't really correlate at all with whether the pandemic was getting better or worse. It's, that's not what's driving it. I mean, mm. There are definitely outbreaks in schools. Wasn't. So we, you know, and we've done the analysis now, but I mean, it was obvious at the time too, that, that, that schools are not driving this. And so closing them actually didn't have much of an impact on anyone. Didn't really affect the course of the, the epidemic very much. And yet we did it. And that's the sort of reason I wrote the book, is just to make this absolutely clear, not just that we did do it, but how we got into a mindset where anybody thought this was a sensible thing to do. And the book wouldn't exist if actually people like me, and I wasn't the only one, there were a number of colleagues saying this about schools early on, that we turned out to be wrong. You know, the book, the book would never have seen the light of day. No one would have been interested in it. But the reason it's there, the reason people are reading it, is, is because this has turned out to be right, and we knew it was right at the time. And I, I, I try to explain how we got from one to the other, how we got from a position where we didn't have any positive evidence that closing schools would do any good, and yet we did it anyway. Do you, we do you have any, any data or statistics around the, the, the amount of people affected by COVID, as in passed away or got sick, very sick by COVID versus the amount of people that were subsequently affected by all of the other aspects. So mental health, loneliness, you know, their education suffering. Do you have any, can, you, can we compare that at all? No, and I think this is, uh, uh, well, not easily. And, and, and I think this is uh, something that absolutely has to be done over the next few years is a proper compilation of just how harmful lockdown was. But there were some attempts to get at this very early on, but they never really made it into the public debate. The Office for National Statistics did a study really very early on in 2020 that for the sorts of reasons I've just been discussing, actually the net benefit to health of the lockdown would be negative because there'd be so many downstream consequences of, of poor health, poor mental health, poverty, uh, lack of education, that these would all have health impacts and in the long term, you know, the, the number of deaths saved would be outweighed by the lost life expectancy because of all these adverse outcomes of, of the lockdown response. So people were thinking about it, but it just never properly rose into the public debate about this at the time because everybody was embracing lockdown and taking, you know, as I said right at the beginning, taking this view that if we just did this for a few weeks, the thing would be over. Now, if that had been true, I would have supported lockdown and not written a book about it. But it, it was never true. And so it turned out. Mark, I, could, I genuinely, you're a fascinating gentleman. I could sit and talk to you all afternoon about this because I've, I've, I will go down about 1,500 rabbit holes of different areas as I am naturally curious to find out more and more and more about what you know and how you've interpreted what's happened. Your book's out. It's an audio book as well at the moment, so we can listen to it as well as read it. So if you're getting in your car and you want to listen to this book, then you can. I love the title. I think it... Did you come up with that idea? 
yes and no. It was my working title. And I thought when it came to be published that we should have a more serious sort of academic title to go with it. And nobody involved would let me change it. <laughs> uh, not, not, not my publisher, not my agent, not my wife. No, no, they said keep it as it is. So that's what you got. Well, ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for Professor Mark Woolhouse. So Mark has had his piece. He's told us what he thinks happened, what went wrong, what we did badly. It's so interesting to understand that the experts like Mark, who knew what to do, only part of what they were advising was listened to by the government. And that's because the government had their own agenda. They were worried about voters more than they were worried about solving the problem in some cases. It's fascinating talking to people that really have been at the forefront of what has really been one of the most incredible experiences of our lifetimes, I would suggest for most of us, and even me at 52. And um, I'm just glad to get that expert view. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got some benefit from listening to Mark and the valuable information and insights that he has. Remember, he's a scientist. He knows his subject way more than we do through public opinion. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then do me a favor and leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. If you're listening on any other podcasting platform, leave us some love, give us some engagement, you know, and get engaged with us by leaving us some feedback, telling us what you think of the show. You know, do you like to follow it? Do you, do you like the guests? Would you like better guests? You know, what is it that you want out of the show to make it better for you? But until the next episode, I'll see you soon.